are yours this Christmas day and always through our incarnate Savior, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Amen. God hates me. Those words were actually spoken to me in all seriousness, maybe even a couple of times by a former friend of mine. He was, in fact, a seminary classmate of mine at the time. God hates me. Now, obviously, if you are willing not even just to think it, but to verbalize such a strong statement as that, you're probably going through some things in life, right? And, and he certainly was. But have you ever found yourself saying that or thinking that at times? God hates me? Or maybe you wouldn't state it quite so strongly, but have you ever wondered maybe, is God with me? When life isn't shaken out quite the way that I had planned, desired, or hoped, is God really with me? When I don't get that, that big promotion that I worked really hard for and, and frankly feel I was the most deserving of, can I really say that God is with me? When your loved one is growing sicker and sicker and, and there's nothing that you can do about it, is God with you? When the car breaks down again, the water heater explodes, and you have no idea where you're going to get the, the money to pay for these massive bills coming your way, is God with you? When the kids ignore your calls and barely even make an effort to visit you during the holidays, is God with you? Or maybe as you consider your own failures and, and your own sin, your own guilt in life, that, that question maybe changes slightly. Maybe you even ask, how could God be with me? How could God be with somebody like me after I was unfaithful to my spouse or betrayed a, a very dear friend? How, how could God be with me when I treated somebody so, so miserably? Like, how could God be with somebody like me when he knows all about that, that addiction that's had its hooks in me for years? And so maybe sometimes we do wonder, not only is God with us, but, but maybe we wonder, has God turned his hand against me? Does God stand in opposition to me? Is he maybe set on my ruin? Well, today in our Christmas text, we are going to go back in the Old Testament and we are going to see somebody who did not know whether God was with him, who in fact, even more than that, didn't really think he needed God with him. It's a story that we reference all the time at Christmas and yet one whose original setting is pretty decidedly unchristmassy in nature. It's the story of a very wicked king of Judah named Ahaz. And yet, despite the fact that this king had turned his back on God in favor of false gods, God was still behind him. In fact, it was for this king that God gave one of the great signs of Christmas. Today, we're, we're reading from Isaiah chapter 7, starting at verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Pause. Well, if 
God is speaking to him again. It means he already spoke to him once. So what did he say? It's worth gathering a bit of context here because there's a lot of it at hand. All this takes place during the time that we sometimes refer to as the the period of the split kingdom, okay? So after Solomon's reign, his son Rehoboam was incredibly oppressive and harsh, and so the northern tribes of Israel separated. They rebelled. They formed their own kingdom. That's the one in blue there that became known as the kingdom of Israel, while the southern tribes in kind of that, I don't know what you'd call that, mauve? I don't know. I don't know colors. That's maybe not even close, but that, that kind of purpley pinkish color um, became known as the kingdom of Judah, okay? So Ahaz was the king over that southern kingdom of Judah. Now, this was also the time where the world was seeing the ascent of one of its first great empires, that of the Assyrians. The Assyrians were just kind of gobbling up everyone around them. They really at this time, though, had their sights mainly set on one other ancient kingdom to the south, the kingdom of Egypt. Of course, if you know anything about your ancient Middle East geography, that puts Israel right in the warpath, okay? So what happened was the king of Aram, whose name was Rezin, that's in the greenish color, the king of Aram and Pekah, the king of Israel, kind of hatched a plan. They came to the king of Judah and said, hey, let's join forces. We're going to go attack Assyria before they can attack us. King Ahaz didn't have to think about that one for too long. He understood that it was a suicide mission. And so he politely declined the request. Uh, Rezin and Pekah did not appreciate this. And so they decided, fine, then we're going to come attack you. And they laid siege to Jerusalem. Now, at this time, Judah was an incredibly frail and broken down nation. So Ahaz and his people were in some very serious trouble here at least from their standpoint of things. From God's viewpoint, he knew that they were not actually in any trouble at all. And God, in fact, sent his prophet Isaiah with assurances to King Ahaz. Back in verse 4, God sends this message to him saying, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of resin and Aram, and of the son of Remaliah. The son of Remaliah was King Pekah of Israel. Okay, so God is saying, Ahaz, I know what you see. I know how this looks to you. You see these two great superpowers knocking at your gates. You know what I see? I see the smoldering ash from last night's campfire. They will not prevail. Take heart. Simply put your faith and trust in me. In fact, I'm going to give you an extra assurance here. Not only am I going to speak these words of assurance to you, I am going to do something more. So again, we come back to verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. One other thing we should maybe understand about Ahaz is that he was a very ardent 
worshiper of a false god named Molech. In fact, he was uh, so deep in this religion that he even sacrificed one of his own sons as an offering to Molech, okay? So when Isaiah, the prophet of the Lord, comes to Ahaz, very likely he thought this was just some crazy old windbag prophet who doesn't know up from down. Why would I listen to him? And so God says, fine, don't just take my word for it. I am going to give you an opportunity now to see and believe. Now, the word sign there implies that God is going to do something miraculous. He is going to step outside the natural, normal order of things and perform a wondrous thing for Ahaz. God says, whatever you want, sky's the limit, name it, and I'll do it. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, it sounds like Ahaz is being humble here. He's not. You see, we learn from elsewhere in Scripture, 2 Kings 16, that Ahaz had begun putting into effect his own plan to get out of this mess, a plan which deeply insulted the Lord. Ahaz, we learn, stripped the temple of God in Jerusalem of all its silver and all its gold. He then sent these things up to the king of Assyria with a message saying, accept this gift from my hand. I have two kings that are attacking me right now. If you come and save the day for me, we will become your vassal state. We will be subject to you and we will pay you as a nation a yearly tribute. That was the plan that Ahaz was putting into effect. Then Isaiah said, hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Like Ahaz, you are already testing some very powerful men. Do you really want to test the patience of the all-powerful God of heaven? Now, this is the point of the story where you and I might expect a sound smiting of Ahaz on God's part, but that's not what happens. Isaiah continues and says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You don't want me involved. I'm getting involved anyway. You don't want a sign? Tough. A sign's exactly what you're going to get. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now, all of this kind of begs the question on our part. Why would God move on behalf of Ahaz like this? Why would he come to bat for a pagan king and for a nation that was largely godless as Judah had become? It's because God had made another promise. Way back in the Garden of Eden, God had made a promise in the aftermath of sin, the first sin, to Adam and Eve saying, I will send one of your own flesh and blood who will crush the head of the serpent and undo the work of Satan. And then sometime later, he made a promise to Abraham saying, from one of your descendants, who will be as numerous as the stars in the sky, I am going to raise one who will bless all the nations of the earth. And then again to King David, 
One of your descendants, David, is going to reign over an eternal kingdom, sitting on an eternal throne. God had made these unconditional promises to his people, promises that depended not at all, even on the faithfulness of the very people to whom he gave them. And so God was going to use Ahaz to accomplish his purposes, whether Ahaz was on board or not. And so he gave him that sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. To which Ahaz said, huh? What's that got to do with anything? You see, in ancient Hebrew, the word translated as virgin can also simply mean a young woman. And so Ahaz disregards the fact that God is giving him a miraculous sign here. All he heard was the latter. A young woman is going to have a baby. And so it made absolutely no impact on him at all. Ahaz continued with his plans set on his course. And yet God still prevails. His promise still stands. Just so happened that the king of Assyria did come and wiped out the kingdoms of Aram and Israel, completely destroying those peoples, dragging them away into exile and slavery, and they were nothing after that. But then, Assyria did set their sights on Jerusalem. Why settle for a vassal state? We could just conquer them outright. So they came a-knocking, they laid siege, and things got miserably terrible for a while until the Lord threw a very direct intervention, rebuffed those armies, sent them packing home, and then moved the king of Assyria's own sons to assassinate him. And so it seemed like everything was all right for a little while again until not too far down the road the Babylonians came a-knocking, and where the Assyrians failed, the Babylonians succeeded. They tore Jerusalem to the ground. They dragged many of its people away into exile. And yet the Babylonians, unlike the Assyrians, allowed the people that they conquered to retain their own customs, retain largely their own culture. Well, now it seemed like the Babylonians were going to reign forever over Israel until the Persians come and they take over Babylon. And they now Persia's going to rule forever. But the Persians were the ones who actually let the Jews go back. They let them return home and rebuild their temple and kind of reestablish the, the life that they had left. Well, now it seemed like the Persians are going to rule forever, but then the Greeks come into town and, and they make a mess of things. They march through the streets of Jerusalem. They take over, and it seems like the Greeks are going to rule forever. And then the Romans come into town, and year after year after year, for hundreds of years, enemy armies are marching up and down Israel's countryside, soldiers' boots tramping the streets of Jerusalem, and the people must have wondered, where is God in all of this? Surely, his hand is turned against us. Surely he cannot be with us any longer. Until some 750 years after God gave that sign to Ahaz. When an angel named Gabriel came to a young woman, a virgin named Mary, in the town of Nazareth and said, Greetings. The Lord is with you. God 
is now going to make good on that promise that he made to Ahaz. Good on that sign that he made to Ahaz. You are the one who will bear the son of the most high God. You will bear for the world. Emmanuel. God makes good on that sign. As Mary and Joseph go down to Bethlehem, as Mary delivers that baby and lays him in a manger, God is making good on his word, giving Ahaz that sign of his deliverance, but much greater than that, (laughs) giving you and me and this whole world the great sign of our deliverance, the deliverance from our greatest enemies. You see, just like Ahaz We are all sinners who by our rebellion, who by our desire to do things our own way instead of God's way, have sent a very clear message to heaven. God, I don't need you. God, I don't want you. And that's what brings us to our first key point today. Sinners say to God, away from us. Even though God created us to to live in his presence, even though God desires all goodness and all blessing for his people, we think we know better than him. We think that we can find better without him. Now, if you thought earlier that, that Ahaz did not deserve the rescue that God provided, the reality is that you and I do not deserve that rescue from his hands either. What we deserve is God letting All of our spiritual enemies destroy us forever in hell. What we deserve is to be shut out from his light and from his holy presence. And there's nothing that we can do to reverse that course. Not by religious fervor or charity or commandment keeping. Those who by their sin have shut themselves out cannot do anything to earn their way back into God's light and God's presence. And yet, also like Ahaz, God does not abandon us. He doesn't leave us in the mess that we made. No, God steps in to act. His plans to save Adam and Eve, his plans for Abraham and David are also his plans for us. Yes, sinners say to God, away from us. But God says to sinners, I am with you. In fact, I will prove it to you. I will give you a sign. Sinners cannot come to me. And so I will come to you. And that's what we find at Christmas. The God of all holiness, the God of heavenly light, breaking through that barrier of our sin to dwell with those who sit in darkness. In fact, this God will go to such great lengths to be with you that he is even willing to walk through hell itself. On the cross, this same Jesus born of Mary, the baby of Bethlehem, he's the one who becomes forsaken. He's the one who becomes steeped in all that that darkness and, and fear and torment that we deserved, bearing your sin and mine on his shoulders. He is shut out from that presence of his loving father that he had known from all eternity. 
And so hear his voice speaking to you today. Hear his voice speaking to you at Christmas and in all your lives long saying, not only do I want to be with you, I will do whatever it takes to be with you. Christmas means that God's light, God's mercy, God's love, God's presence, and God's forgiveness are with you. That he is with you. Think about that promise. Whatever troubles or struggles have you under siege right now, whatever enemy it is that that you see at your gates threatening to destroy you, whatever sin or addiction it is that that you can't shake off and and that you're fearful is going to drag you right on down into hell. God has not abandoned you. He has not turned his hand against you. No, through faith in this child of Bethlehem, God is in you. He is for you. He is with you. Merry Christmas. Rejoice in this gift, the greatest gift that our world could ever hope to receive, this greatest gift that our world has now received and seen with its own eyes. That gift of Emmanuel. God is with you now, tomorrow, and always. Amen. Amen.